0: Well, hello, and welcome to episode five of The Wine List, which is, I'm sure you know by now, is a podcast for people who, when presented with a Wine List, go, oh, ah, right, oh, yes, uh, hmm, yeah, what do you fancy? Whereas what they really want to do is pick out the perfect wine for the perfect food, for the perfect occasion, but don't quite necessarily have the knowledge or confidence to do so, and I'm in that position. My name is Oliver Turnbull, and the gentleman who has helped me so far, up to episode five, to start to understand wine, where it's come from, how it's made, and how to choose a good one, is my friend of a third of a century, Mr. Richard Lane.
1: Oliver, hi there, or rather, good day.
0: Ah, did you say good day? Ah, might have done. I wonder why. Oh, such teases.
1: (laughs) Good stuff, oh yes. Episode five, so um, terrific. Getting on for halfway through series one. You know, I'm sure there'll be dozens of series after this last time we spoke you were just about to um show the riesling from uh, ep 4 to to your good lady wife louise
0: yes exactly and i i said oh louise i thought we might have a riesling with our sushi tonight because i know you bought sushi and she went uh, that's Richard's idea, right? And I was like, yes, and hung my head. But uh, she was very impressed that I'd thought ahead to pair wine with food. And so we sat down quite late in the evening, but still quite light. Got the sushi out with the old chopsticks and the Riesling. And I, you know, I'd warned her that it was a, a sweet, sweet white wine. And do you know what? It worked perfectly, even with the accoutrements, with the ginger and the pickle and the, the lovely fresh fish on the rice and the rolls, the California rolls, it, it really was beautiful. You know, I'd been unsure about that sweet Riesling up until that point. I, I really liked the flavours, but the sweetness was something I wasn't used to. But something about the flavours of the sushi cut through a bit of that sweetness. And um, yeah, I don't think it was my imagination that they were a great combination. So thank you, Dr. lucen uh, for suggesting that. A very positive experience and a good experiment. Well,
1: I'm delighted. Oh, I didn't quite get the same reception here. No, oh. in my household, admittedly, we didn't pair it up with sushi or anything like that. I said to Liz, "Oh, there's a bit of um, riesling left. It's medium sweet. Um, yeah, give it a go." Sure, okay, give it a go. And then I saw her later on. She, said, mm, not sure I really like that wine. I thought it was just sort of glorified lemonade. Really, I thought, oh well. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> ooh, ow, ooh, ouch. The point is, everyone's tastes are different. You cannot say categorically that a wine is fantastic because beauty is in the eye or tongue or mouth of the beholder in this case. Actually, it's a good call for doing some food pairing with it, which is something we hadn't been doing and we apologised a bit for in episode four. But now we're thinking about it and you've tried it. I think that's terrific.
0: That's right. I mean, I, I was obviously keen to like it. So that helped. Um, and I think there's also associations as well. You know, if you have an association with a particular taste and you have that taste Taste again, I think that can really help you in, enjoy a wine, and I suppose I feel I feel that when I taste a, a claret and can remember remember home. Anyway, so that was good, but now we move on to um, episode five. Are you going to reveal uh, the name you've chosen, Rich?
1: I will indeed. All episode five is entitled "Brave New Worlds."
0: Is this an excuse for you to get your violin out and play uh, "War of the Worlds"? Uh, that classic Jeff Wayne and his orchestra.
1: (laughs) Well, I could do, um, and I will certainly, I'm sure at some point, get, get the old fiddle out at some point to maybe link some passages in this app. More importantly, this episode is obviously looking at worlds as in this slightly old-fashioned concept these days really of the old world and the new world. Obviously by new world we're talking about countries outside Europe and particularly the southern hemisphere and uh, United States of America and Canada. Obviously in the south we're talking about Chile, Argentina, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. I really want to focus on Australia, not at the absolute exclusion of all the others. We have obviously touched on New Zealand in episode one. Chile, of course, we have covered in in, in episode two so I thought actually let's have a look at Australia because the Australian wine story is so interesting and fascinating the marketing and the brilliance of their wines
0: ah yes our Australian friends and cousins gotta love them (laughs) <laughs>
1: well you have really you've been there once, haven't you
0: all? Yeah, I have. Uh, lovely place, lovely people. Interesting. Felt a long way from home. It was about nineteen ninety seven with my now wife. Lovely. But um, you, you must have been there a decent stay actually. You've got family out there and stuff, haven't you?
1: Yeah, that's it. One of my sisters, Caroline, a naturalised Australian, married an Australian man, have a lovely daughter who's Australian, of course. Um, yeah, they live out in Sydney. And I first went out there in 1999. Looking back on it, it was, I realise now, it was in Australia in 1999. That was actually the scene of my first winery visit ever in an area called the Hunter Valley, which is in New South Wales, sort of a couple of hours up from Sydney. We went up there, stayed in a log cabin and tasted lots of wine. And I knew nothing about it, but, but had a great time. And Funnily enough, I was just digging around on the computer and you wouldn't believe it, I found some audio that I took on my rather primitive audio recording machine oh, really, yeah, from 22 years ago. And uh, it's a little bit scratchy and there's a little bit of background noise, but I just want to play a tiny clip because there was a nice Australian lady in our group. We did a winery tour where you get driven around all the, all the wineries in a minibus. The only way to do it, obviously, so everyone can enjoy having a sip. And I met this lovely lady called Loretta Martin, who comes from Canberra. She found some um, book in the winery and she read a bit to me and listened to what she says.
0: It says, wine, the cleverest thing God invented after sex. Wine lasts longer, causes infinitely less trouble. (laughs) Hilarious. So... uh, um, so that's what he invented after six. What did he invent before six or six PM? I'm assuming. Well, yeah, I must admit. when
1: I listened to that back again, having almost forgotten about meeting her 22 years ago. Yeah, I thought, well, what did you do, what did God invent during the daytime? But I do believe she's referring to sex, not S-I-X. Ah. And you know, what ah. that uh, and it's better than you know, sex and, and sex because of its enduring quality and lasting. Oh ho ho ho, and all the rest of it. So
0: oh, how very ribald, mind you. That's a uh, good old. Author. Woman. Yeah, nice. yeah,
1: she was, she, she was great.
0: Let's refer back uh, to the old wine list. That's the name of the podcast. And so um, I've got the old Shea, Shea Bruce. Bruce's
1: wine list. I will guarantee, I don't know, but I'm sure there are a, 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 fa- a fair few Aussie wines on there.
0: Yeah, not bad. Half a page of white. So the white page is in front of me now. And they split it. Um, and I think you won't be surprised about this. They split it uh, three ways. The first is Victoria and Tasmania. Tons of Chardonnay and one Marzan. And then South Australia um, is more of a mixture uh, a Simillon there there's a Riesling there there's a, there is another Chardonnay and then Western Australia there's only one from Western Australia which is uh, also a Chardonnay so I guess you'd expect that split would you?
1: Uh, yeah pretty much so we're talking about the southern states of, of Australia which ties in with our thirty fifty. the fact you mentioned Chardonnay again is no great surprise because Australia winemakers they, they make many many white wines but Chardonnays they are absolutely fantastic at making they come in many different styles and uh, yeah Margaret River down in Western Australia they make a lovely quite ripe kind of peachy sort of uh, chardonnay down there so that all sounds good old what about the reds
0: so the reds is more of them so this is page 26 remember how large this wine list is i tell you what in the old days it would intimidate me now i'm just like i'm gonna i'm gonna dive in because i'm i I know a little bit about this now so new south wales victoria and tasmania is one area has some great wines on there like the timo Meyer from bloody hill a fantastic bindi wines and a Curly flat. Oh, I'd love a Curly flat, mate. This is fantastic. They're all pinot noirs. In Western Australia, the second region, they have a shiraz. Interesting for us because we are about to taste one, uh, and then one mixture of four grapes, including merlot, malbec, cab franc, cab Sauve. And then South Australia has a few, and they're dominated by grenache. And there's also a shiraz uh, in South Australia as well. So, again, divided in a way you'd expect, I suppose.
1: Yeah, that all sounds pretty good. Glad there's a Shiraz on there. All very cool. all. So, yeah, the, the, the wine list looks good. I suppose i better introduce the wines that we're tasting tonight. They're all 2019. Hopefully everyone knows what they are because they're on the website. And we've flagged them at the end of the last ep. But very simply, we are going to be tasting a white wine first, which is going to be a viognier Marsan blend called The Hermit Crab. That comes from a great producer in South Australia called Dan and then later on we're going to explore as Ol's just said we're going to explore the, the Shiraz contrasting with the Syrah well it's the same thing from France we're going to be comparing a, a 2019 Syrah from Northern Rhone with a 2019 Aussie Shiraz so um, those are our wines but we cannot start tasting until we know that all has done his homework so while I I gave you um a little bit of homework to do it really sets the scene for the rest of this episode because actually it's a little trip back in time it's going back 45 years to 1976 but but something important happened also in about a minute without uh, deviation or hesitation would you like to uh, tell us about the judgment of
0: paris we should have turned a uh, from just a minute and also back to my prep school days where mr newman would do exactly what you've done rich which is evil so uh, we can all get on boys and do something enjoyable if turnbull could prove he's done his homework over to you turnbull and then 20 pairs of nasty eyes looking at me because they want to play football or cricket or something uh, and if i haven't done my homework <laughs> i get my head smashed against a <laughs> wall afterwards but anyway mr Newman slash rich, you lose because I've done my homework uh, in, in, some, in some degree of detail because it's, it's a, an assignment like you always give me, is an assignment that you think I like. And I I, I love this one because it's a, it's a competition and it has sort of an unexpected twist, which you might be able to predict given the nature of the episode. But anyway, the Judgment of Paris was uh, the brainchild of a gentleman called Mr. Stephen Spurrier, a Brit wine merchant who was a massive fan of French wine. And um, his friend, or his associate, I suppose, Patricia Gallagher. And his idea was, as the old world was renowned for producing the finest wines to humanity. But the New World was coming through in the mid-70s. He thought he would conduct an experiment, a blind experiment, if you like, um, using judges of renowned in the wine industry to see how, in a blind test, the New World wines would do Against the old world wines, uh-huh. which sounds like a, a fabulous thing to do. And this is, remember, Rich, 1976. So 45 years ago, you know, one has to go back to that time when the new world would have seen even more of an upstart, if you like, than, um,
1: yeah, definitely. than
0: uh, it, it is at the moment. So it's sort of old fashioned, semi kind of Ryder Cup format, really, where you had 10 red wines and 10 white wines. They were all mixed up, some from the USA and some from France. Of course, it's a blind test, so the judges didn't know uh, which wine was which. And there were 11 judges, all of them French. Very interesting point. With the exception of Stephen himself, who was a French wine enthusiast, um, and Patricia Patricia Gallagher. They all did the blind test. Uh, Ten wines of red variety, ten wines of the white variety, and guess what happened? Ah, go on, tell me. I don't know. Well... In the white wine section, extraordinarily, a Chateau Montalina, sounds kind of French, is not French, <laughs> it's an American wine of a vintage in 1973, so a three-year-old uh, white wine won the competition for the white wines, which was absolutely unheard of. The French were up in arms, as you can possibly imagine. A white wine Sacre from Bleu. the New World, specifically American um, has turned out to be the best of 10 white wines, which are a mixture of French and American. So that was absolutely astonishing and no one could believe it. And everyone thought, well, that must be the end of the story. That's the big story here. But no. Can you believe when the results came through? On the red wine side, I think you know what's coming. An American wine from Stag's Leap Wine Cellars, again, vintage 1973, God. with 127 and half points won the red wine category as well
1: rich wow stag's leap california just to say yeah absolutely true and it's no exaggeration to say it shook the wine world i mean we were barely out of short trousers all at at that point but it is interesting i think they've even made films about this great summary if i may say so well i i think it's fair to say turnbull's done his homework let's all go and play (laughs) cricket
0: it was literally like that. What a horrible man. But he, he wouldn't have done what you did, Rich. Mr Newman would have gone, I'm sorry, Turnbull. And I think you'll find it's pronounced Montelina. <laughs> Therefore, everybody now has to do lines. And feel free to hit turnbull with your wooden rulers which they were i know i can't anyway yes let's not go on about corporal punishment during our school days (laughs) (laughs) because
1: we're certainly even older than we are really kick-started what happened Well, really in reality didn't really start happening until the following decade the 1980s which was the revolution where the new world suddenly got on the front foot with confidence and started making brilliant wine australia that we're focusing on this evening being the great Example of that in the mid '80s, they went, did lots of research. They spoke to wine experts. They went to London wine fairs and things, and did a bit of kind of market research, and realised that if they used their climate correctly and their skills of viticulture and winemaking, they could produce delicious wines. Not just that, put them in a bottle with a label that consumers could understand. It would say, for example, shock horror, the grape variety in the wine, which you wouldn't always <laughs> always get with French labelling, as you know. Often they would. Would be marketed with really funky labels and funky names and things like, things that we remember probably from the 80s and 90s, things like Jacob's Creek, you remember, of course.
0: Very popular.
1: And and actually, it was very much a commercial way in which Australia, using the Australian example again, kind of marketed themselves. It wasn't just that they were good at, at making wine. They were really, really good at marketing their wine. And again, this is something that, that conventionally, historically, particularly in France, there was a kind of slight sniffiness about marketing and business and stuff. It was kind Mm. of assumed that, you know, you didn't need to do that. It was all about producing beautiful wines and why do we need to go and market them and we'll find out what our customers or consumers want.
0: Yeah, you've really got to hand it to the Aussies actually. Good on them. I mean it's a great culture down there of sort of laid backness and stuff, but they really did a number in terms of, like you say, they're not just a really good product, but also the great marketing of it. Australian wines were, you know, uh, th- th- there wasn't sort of that, oh, that's that's a bit weird, an Australian wine, uh, cause, because I guess well, they were one of the first from the old world. I'm looking at the old 30 3050 there's a lot of australia not in the 3050 band i suppose they got around that with their burgeoning knowledge of terroir
1: well indeed and although you could argue in some senses i'm not saying that australians are not interested in terroir they certainly are but they're not hung up about it obviously you've got to be judicious about where you're doing a your viticulture and you need cooling influences that we discussed in 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 episode two coastal breezes are really important altitude is is really important i mean the top Top area, I suppose, in Australia, if you just had to nail one area, would be the Barossa Valley, which is just up from Adelaide. So, I mean, for example, Riesling we were tasting last night, you can make that, even though it's a cool climate variety, you know, hence Germany and Mosul last time. You can make it in Australia, but you need to be at altitude, so you need cool breezes, so like the Clare Valley or Eden Valley in South Australia. But, of course, the other great thing about Australia... uh, is you know is is, it is sunny and you can ripen your fruit very very well but without wanting to over ripen them of course because as you know that's not a great thing because you end up with just sort of jammy slightly simplistic wines
0: or too quickly right or Or too too quickly quickly.
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: i mean you were talking about how how quickly they they started to dominate the new world or at least be a major player in the new world i mean if you look at the figures that that you dug out 1984 nine million liters it's hard to understand how much that is but it doesn't sound massive it's just a 9.6 million aussie dollar um, export and then uh, just 20 years later 2004 from 9 million to 575 million liters exported worth australian dollars 2.55 billion so that's uh yeah a few hundred more in 20 years which is incredible Let's look at our white wine. Let's do it. This has got a grape in it that I am familiar with and I know I like.
1: Good. Well, tell us tell, tell us what you know about this wine, Oll, and what it looks like. And uh, let's do the, the old sniffometer, salivometer,
0: and tasteometer. Great. I'll <laughs> just to turn on my readometer. Uh, so, this is an Australian, good old uh, Australian wine, the Hermit Crab. I also like the names of uh, Australian wines yeah. as well. They're sort of down to earth and a bit quirky, and a bit. Ah, oh, yeah, I'd just uh, have a glass of the old Hermit Crab. Ah, <laughs> oh, you've got the crabs there, so you might. And you can imagine the humour. But this is a Voynier Marsan. McLaren Vale is where it's from 2019. So it's a blend of Voignier and uh, Marcin. Voignier, I'm aware of and really like. So I'm looking forward to this.: Good.
1: Yes, And, and a nice linkage here for this seB is that both Vioner and Marsan, lovely white varieties herald from, historically, the Northern Rhone, as in Syrah and Shiraz, that we're gonna taste in a bit. So very much a link today is Northern Rhone and Australia. Viognier, m- most people know, a lot of people know it. It's it's often very peachy, very apricotty. It can be quite kind of a bit lush, do you know what I mean? Uh, it can be quite broad in the mouth. It's got often got, got quite good weight and it's quite aromatic, quite peachy. Marsan is is also lovely and very lemony. One with, can be lemon curdy and with a lovely oily texture. So I'm hoping the wine, this blend, is gonna be super, uh, it should have a really, really nice texture. And I'm guessing, I'm guessing there'll be a, a little bit of acidity, possibly, um, to, to, to make to make sure that it's not too wide or flabby in the mouth. We're about to find out. But tell me the appearance of, of our hermit crab from McLaren Vale. Darrenberg is the producer, a uh, 2019.
0: Is it lemony or is it
1: more a bit goldy?
0: I have just unscrewed the top of the bottle because we know that screw tops are every bit as good as cork, if not better. And this... I would say is lemony. Yeah, lemony. Very pale.
1: Let's get the nose on this straight away because you are the expert now, so let's um let's yep, crack I'm straight swirling
0: into it. it. I put a bit too much in the glass actually. That was a bit silly. So my swirling is uh, substandard this week. Aha. Uh-huh. But Oh, I like that. God, I can see your peaches immediately. Um, there are tones of the Wagner that I like and I cannot Describe it, but I would definitely recognise it. I'll try to describe it. I want to say sort of silk clothing, but that doesn't seem to help at all. No, it's lovely, really nice. You might almost say floral.
1: I think you can say floral, on, and that's a good yeah. thing to say. And I think you've definitely um, within that floral thing, we, we get. I can. I'm picking up a bit of honeysuckle on the nose. It's like the bush ah. outside our back door in the garden here.
0: Yeah, this, there is something that I, I do get that. I remember we had honeysuckle at our house in in in. Oodles. So, and the lemon curd, you said, I see why you're saying that, and the tropical fruits. Yeah. Can I have a sip now? Go for it, I'll go. Mm, thank you. Really nice. I think I like it better than a, an ordinary Wagnyer. There's something, there's a sort of whole fruity feel. I can just feel, and it, it's like a cross between a peach and a, A peach and a sort of nectarine kind of uh, flavour in my mouth. Lovely, really nice. Fills my mouth with this lovely flavour.
1: It is absolutely gorgeous. It really is mouth-filling. Nice acidity as well. Because with Viognier and Marsan, potentially it could be a bit oily, as as I was alluding to earlier, and and maybe a bit flabby in the mouth. But it's a wonderful, refreshing acidity about this wine. Plus the lemon, and it's like a lemon curd, I'd say. It's quite a concentrated lemon. With the peach and apricot and nectarine, brilliant cool all that you mentioned, totally get that with the lovely kind of floral flavors as well it is absolutely delicious this guy at darrenberg he's called chester osborne he's a very charismatic flamboyant winemaker i'm delighted that you know these winemakers who can sell their wines for a lot of money will make a wine that is affordable okay this is our most expensive wine this evening but it's 11 pounds 50 you know that's in the grand scheme of things that's that's not excessive for a good quality wine i would say
0: I have news. The news is sometimes uh, the aftertaste of a Wagner. I I don't like particularly but this seems to give you a sort of fruity aftertaste bonus. And what did you say? Did you say full in the mouth? Has only ever been what, a, what what describes a punch uh, ah, in the previous. But yeah. it I get it I think what you're saying.
1: There's a bit of a bit of weight. It's not really heavy in the mouth. It's not like a sauvignon blanc which is quite, quite light in the mouth and steely or shabby. There's, there's definitely more weight here I would say.
0: Mm. Yeah, I can see that in terms of the intensity of the flavour, but it's such a lovely flavour as well. I'm sort of trying to imagine why they've created this blend. It seems to possibly make the best of both grapes, which I suppose is the, um, (laughs) the idea of blending. That's
1: the idea of blending. And blending is incredibly important. Absolutely right.
0: What an incredibly difficult job, Rich. I mean, do these people become sort of superstars, like superstar DJs who are pretty good at, uh, at sort of mixing and stuff? Yeah, well,
1: yeah. It's good good, great analogy, mixing on the, de- the old decks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the answer is a very few, A very few do become sort of superstars. But the average winemaker are just incredibly passionate, hardworking people. And sometimes they're involved in the viticulture as well as the winemaking. And, you know, so they're kind of grape farmers and winemakers, some of them, you know, small outfits. They won't have someone managing the, 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 the outside and someone else doing the winemaking. Sometimes it's the, the family doing the thing, you know.
0: It's such a personal thing that you got put your, your personal standpoint. If it's your grapes, your mix, your curation, your... Caring for the uh, crop. Exactly. It must be incredible. And I suppose that's your reward.
1: Exactly. And by the way, all, I haven't sipped the um, hermit crab for about two minutes and I can still taste it in my mouth. It's just yep. so wonderful.
0: Yeah, I'm really impressed. That might be my um, favourite of the series, you know, Rich. I really love it. And I'm I'm doing a bit of an acid test, bit of a bit of acidity there, I believe, if I'm yep. not mistaken. Yes, it.
1: Yeah, definitely. But not it's
0: ridiculous.
1: Ri- yeah, I doubt you're salivating very much. I think it's probably medium, maybe just over medium acidity. It's not high like with the Riesling and and the Sauvignon Blanc from Episode One. Enough acidity to make it refreshing. Well done, Chester Osborne, Darenberg Hermit Crab, 2019 Viognier, Marsanne yeah, blend. Good on you. Eleven pounds fifty. Good value, I would say. What else have you dug out about Australia?
0: Well, just a few um, figures about how much they contribute to the uh, world economy wine, the world wine, the world wine economy, which is quite impressive, actually. But it's interesting. I mean, I like numbers, as you know, and it, it only really makes sense if you can um, compare them with other countries. But just as a comparison, if you were sort of to divide the cake, um, there's about 30 billion bottles, I believe, uh, of wine created worldwide. Australia is responsible for about a billion of those. So if you compare Italy, which is the biggest wine producer in the world, at about five billion, it gives you sort of idea of scale of the old world versus the new. So Italy, Spain and France, the big three, as they're probably not called in the wine world.
1: <laughs> Let's call them that because that's what they are, definitely. Well, they
0: they are certainly very, very big. They contribute about half of that 30 billion, five-ish each, with the biggest one of those being Italy. The interesting thing is that uh, of all the big um, new world countries, I guess you'd probably say Argentina, Chile, South Africa, Australia, They all contribute about one billion as well, the same as Australia and about 20% of the the big ones with uh, the US being a bit a bit different. We're not going to be talking too much about them uh, in this episode, but we will not be ignoring them. They're just over two billion. So that sort of gives you an idea. The whole market is dominated. Uh, 50% of the whole world market is the big three. But uh, is an enormous amount uh, coming from the new world, a billion litres from each of uh, Argentina, Australia, South Africa, Chile, and then the US contributes too as well. So not bad.
1: Excellent, Alt. So the, the stats are interesting. and The stats are certainly impressive. But let's get to the heart of what we're doing here, which is getting your palate razor sharp again and looking at these two red wines. Uh, you've got them poured, I yep. hope, if you could put... The French Syrah on the left and the Australian Shiraz on the right. Again, just a reminder to everyone, these are wine society, UK wine society wines. Both of these, again, like the uh, Hermit Crab 2019, screw caps, the French Syrah, um, which comes from the Northern Rhone. £7.95, and the Society's Australian Shiraz, 2019, £8.50. Oliver, of course, is going to be able to detect the 55 pence differential quality (laughs) between the two wines. Any difference in appearance?
0: No, I I don't think so. It's a little bit like when you're having your eyes tested. They say which one sticks out more. This This or this? (laughs) Could you do it again? This (laughs) or this? One more time. This or this
1: okay assume they're deep ruby are they are
0: they are certainly deep ruby and yeah i can't tell the difference between them frankly
1: do you know anything about syrah or shiraz i know you're not really a red wine drinker i mean you tend to have a glass of white when we go out i mean right. historically i know that's all about to change <laughs> do you know much about uh, syrah stroke shiraz
0: no, not at all. I only learnt recently they were the same grape, thank God. Yet another thing that's going to not embarrass me when I'm choosing wine.
1: Well, let's give these two wines side by side a, a good a good sniff.
0: Not a million miles away from the Cote d'Or, uh, if my nose serves me correctly. Oh, they are different, though.
1: Slightly peppery smell in the in the French wine.
0: A little bit. I mean, my first sport, I better. Yeah, I, there's something, oof, I want to say chemically about the Australian one, but I don't mean chemically in a bad way, in a sort of organic way. I know, you what, know what you mean.
1: What I mean. It does, there, there's there, there's something slightly clinical about the the
0: right hand one. It's not unpleasant clinical, but there's something about the, um, my chemistry set that comes to mind.
1: Interesting, okay. But uh, my only observation really is is that the left hand one particularly, I'm getting sort of a pepperiness and a slight spiciness. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes, I see what you're saying, yeah. yeah.
1: And let's let's go to the palette all. Let's uh, let's oh, taste yes. let's let's taste the Syrah first, the French Syrah. French first.
0: Mmm, mm. blinding. Oh well, I know I know when to look out for tannin, and I'm getting tons of it. Right. Oh wow, that's a lot of tannin. That's tanniny. And do you know? Is it unpleasant? It's very sort of sticky sticks to your mouth but it's tanniny not unpleasant and like you say it's not really a taste it's a it's a, an, a another quality if you like yeah. another dimension
1: no you're absolutely right quite tannic Are you getting anything relating to fruit at all Would you say red fruit cherries or plums or black fruit black currant or black plums any spice pepper things it's like cherry,
0: that if anything mm. Tastes dark. It is cherry.
1: Tastes dark to me tastes like black cherry the black cherries and getting black cherry yogurt.
0: By God it is. You absolutely nailed it and I am not imagining it. That's absolutely what it is. Ski yogurt 1980. Quite awful. Quite awful. But uh, the only thing available at the time.
1: (laughs) That's that's fair. And you're right. It's I mean this is quite a simple wine. Um, it's the the wine society's French Syrah they've looked it up and and it's being sourced from the area around Croix-Hermitage which is a kind of large flat area in the northern Rhone very different to those exclusive kind of crews that you get you get crews in the northern Rhone or like in the southern Rhone that we discussed you know previously where the wines can be you know catastrophically expensive Côte roti and Hermitage um, far you know we don't have the budget I'm afraid to, to, to taste those but you know this is a good thing you can get wines at an affordable level admittedly the quality isn't going to be quite as good but this is a decent decentish wine I would say the only comment I would say is that the tannins as you say they're a little bit aggressive and they're, they're a bit they slightly dominate the wine I'd say let's just pause on the French and fly off you know 10,000 miles to South Australia where the Shiraz will have been made. The other thing about Australia as well, they, they don't get hung up on Appalachian Controle. Oh, we'll come to that in a sec. But let's, let's smell and taste the Australian Shiraz. Shiraz. So we've already said it's a bit slight, there's something a bit chemistry set going on. So, okay, let's taste.
0: Oh, what is it? It's almost like the inside of a 1970s Morris Minor. Well, less tanniny. I put the mortgage on that. Correct. And I don't know whether I like that more or less. I didn't mind the tannin. There's something about that tannin wallop it was like whoa i'm getting something here for my money
1: and you're right the tannins winemakers can do things to extract lots of tannin or less tannin and if you want to make a wine that's commercially appealing to a wide mass market you don't want big aggressive tannins you know the population at large don't like them No, no 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 and i suspect that's what's gone on with this wine because Syrah stroke Shiraz does generally have quite high tannins kind of medium to high levels of tannin that's normal yeah. for this great variety quite a thick skin so a lot of tannin going on there tannins as on this wine is quite low so i expect there's been a bit of clever jiggery pokery going on in the win- winery possibly
0: there's a bitterness i'm afraid mm. there's a slight bitterness to the afters which i'm not a massive fan of let me just try and get some flavors again oh what
1: is it i think it's sort of black currant black plums and something a tiny bit chocolatey but again i just i could be imagining that and i know what you mean Ol. If the finish of wine number two, the Australian Shiraz, it's quite a long finish but it's not a particularly pleasant finish because what I'm finding is that the kind of, definitely the generic sort of dark spicy black fruit, it's not very spicy, the French Syrah is spicier I think. I'm definitely putting my mortgage on black fruit, black plums, black currant. I find the fruit kind of goes quite quickly but the acidity and, and Yes, I think it's the acidity and perhaps the slight sourness or bitterness mm. it sort of is the hallmark of the finish. So and that can trip people up sometimes. I think, oh, this wine's got a really long finish. I said, well, yeah, but is it a pleasantly long finish? Yeah. And I would argue that it's not a pleasantly long finish. But again, you know, we are talking about a wine that's under a tenner that's come halfway across the world. Which one do you prefer
0: and why? It's the French. I'm absolutely um, convinced. I I wanted to like the Australian one, because, um, you know, up the the New World and everything, and I love the Australian story. But the tannins don't bother me, and I actually quite like them. It makes me feel like I'm getting a a full hit of flavour, and the aftertaste is much, much nicer. You get a sort of more complete fruitiness in the mouth. The nose, very similar, but I would go for the French, I think.
1: That is interesting, and again, I know we're talking about Australia and we love Australia and Australian wine. I would agree with you. I'm not mad on either on wine, but, you know, especially, but if I had to take one, I would take the French one. For the reasons you've already said, it's actually got a bit more character than the Australian wine, which is a bit, as I said, it's a bit slightly chemically, slightly con, you know, commercial, I think. But for me, the fact that where the, the, the tannins going on and some of the fruit and the spice, and there's more spice in the, in, in the, in the French wine, I just think it's a bit more interesting. Our hermit crab which was only a couple of pounds more and of course a white wine blend 11 pounds 50 uh, was in a different class actually wasn't it even though obviously we're not yeah. comparing apples with apples here we're well
0: not but you did talk about this a lot last time and it made me think you know about value over quality if you like and because we've all got a budget and you know, you said that the best fiver you could spend was you know <laughs> moving upgrading to a premier yeah. crew, maybe a grand crew might not even be worth getting that extra layer. Yeah, and in
1: going from shabli yeah. ordinary Chablis to upgrading to you know kind of um, premium economy or, or uh. yes,
0: yes. <laughs> that, maybe that's a great analogy because I don't think I've tra- I have traveled first once, and was it worth double premium economy? No, to me, and although I do like white wine, that that first one, yeah, was in a different a different league to both the reds, but. You know, for seven or eight quid, that French Syrah is lovely, and also I'm probably being a bit hard on the Australian Shiraz, but it was nice for you to mention sourness and bitterness in the in the in the in the finish, which uh, it was nice that you'd also noticed the same thing, and I'd noticed, I'd said it first, so. <laughs> you know, was very rewarding.
1: well, you know, I'm I'm quite impressionable, me, so I was just I was just hanging on your every word, dear boy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Brilliant. I think perhaps what we should just go on to say for a couple of minutes before we wrap up all is what the influence of the new wave of new world that really kicked off in the eighties w- w- with regard to Australia, what that has done reciprocally in the old world, because it actually is quite interesting. I mentioned earlier how Australia doesn't worry too much about Appalachian control. A basically in Australia. It's up to, and and pretty much all of the New World, if you want to plant great variety X here or there, you can do it. You haven't got rules saying you can't plant those varieties here. And if you do, you've got to restrict the yields to make them really low, which is by, by restricting the yield of fruit, you're... Getting better concentration of grapes and therefore better wine. People know that in the new world, and they may choose to do it, but they're not being forced to do it by regulations. That's the point. There's much more freedom in mm-hmm. the new world. The, the kind of basic thing is when it comes to appellation rules. If you're in the old world, basically you probably can't do it, and in the new world, everything goes. You know, in, in a sense that you you, you know you're, you're, you've got the freedom, which, which, which is great. But that doesn't mean that terroir and an Appalachian Control in France is is a terroir-driven system based on grape varieties that perform best in the best conditions, the best soils, the best climate and all the rest of it. That doesn't mean that Australian, New Zealand Americans, South Africans, South South Americans ignore that. It's just that they're just a bit freer to do what they want. Now, what is interesting is if we go back to France and we've been in the Northern Rhone uh, talking about the, the uh, Syrah, and also those grape varieties in the Australian white wine, the hermit crab, the the Viognier and the Marsan, which come from the Northern Rhone in France. It's not that far from the Northern Rhone to Languedoc, the Languedoc in Southern France, which is a huge area of Mediterranean, just inland from the Mediterranean, France, almost going down to the Spanish border. There's a little bit before the Spanish border called Roussillon, but Languedoc, um, vast area. And there, the main Kind of grape varieties it's red wine territory generally let's just talk about red wine uh, to make it simpler it's Grenache and Syrah blended with, with another grape called Mourvedre. but let's not worry about Mourvedre. GSM Grenache Syrah Mourvedre. that dominates the scene in the Languedoc within the Appalachian, Appalachian control system because the Appalachian control says these grapes Grenache and Syrah and Mourvedre do really well in this pretty warm Mediterranean climate. And we want you to grow these grapes only because that's respecting the terroir of the Longadoc. Fine. However, only 25% of wines in the Longadoc are within the Appellation Controle system. There's a looser- there's a, yeah i know bear with me all because i know we had it all neatly tied up with terroir yes, and, i know and, and, this is I,
0: what you are do to me constantly I, I with this stupid <laughs> subject because i go i get it oh on control, controller you know that makes a lot of sense and then you go except
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> like, and this is. is this is the, the these are the vagaries of the wine world you know it's just such a deep ocean but just just hear me out because it's really relevant to Australia and the New World. Because only 25% of the area under Vine in the Languedoc is uh, is it within the Appalachian Control system, it means, three quarters isn't obviously, which means that it's part of a looser system which is called IGP, Indication Geographique Protégée these rules, by the way, are not just for France it's a European Union, Europe-wide thing so you basically have your tightest rules which in France are called Appellation Controle then your less tight rules which is called IGP Indication Géographique Protégée this is in, in France and there's even something even looser than that but let's not worry about that but the point is outside the appellation system you have freedom as a grower of grapes and a winemaker to do funky stuff that you could only get away with in the new world and that's really important because when Australia, New Zealand, Chile particularly, to a certain extent South Africa and later Argentina started really hitting the markets and doing brilliantly on, on, on kind of quote old-world markets, the reaction was for people in the Languedoc, particularly because so much of the Languedoc is not under control control, to start doing what the New World were doing. So surprise, surprise, you suddenly started seeing 100% Cabernet Sauvignons, 100% Ceres or blends with funky labels, trendy labels, nice names, labels that told you what was going on inside the bottle. Basically, the New World was born in the Old World in Southern France because of what the New World were doing
0: which is good in a way, isn't it? It's sort of democratic, right? It's like um, taking away the, I mean, we love French wines in France, but it's taking away the sort of monopoly in the mystique uh, and breaking that down to exactly. extent by exactly. by the extent. Exactly.
1: Which is what we're doing in this podcast, you know, getting rid of the mystique.
0: Yeah, that's right. Whilst not, and you're very keen on this, I know, whilst not um, getting rid of the, um, I guess, the indefinable uh, qualities of wine um, so not trying to apply so many rules that it becomes a, a bland science but uh, breaking down some of the some of the mis- mysteries of it so that you can be a bit more confident about about uh, the wine that you're ordering that's exactly the uh, the reason we're doing this exactly right excellent
1: okay i'll get in close to wrap but um take
0: home messages from this set, please Love your uh, mention of rap. Like we're, we're total professionals in this game. I love it. So uh, before we wrap, uh, I've learnt loads. Loved it. Uh, Why? I, I, I like the story. I like the story of the uh, rebellious uh, younger sibling uh, making waves in the world. The Australians being at the vanguard of this. And the reliance of the old on the new and the other way around. So uh, without the old world, the new world would never have been able to have the confidence to um, start taking over the market and providing us as the consumer with so many more options. Um, So a lot of the old world learnings from centuries have had to be applied in the new world. But there's also been the, um, the other way around in that the the, the, the success of the uh, New World wines has forced the old world um, to, in some ways, relax some of the rules and sort of be a little bit more transparent about the product and also be a bit more experimental uh, to come up with new ways to, you know, fight off the competition. And competition um, in, in this context seems to me to be always good because people have to keep on experimenting to come up with new things that are both absolutely delicious and at a price point that more and more people can afford. A great swathe of the new world story has happened within our our lifetime. I mean the the great experiments in Paris in 1976 happened when we, as you say, were just coming out of short trousers. So what a revolution in such a relatively short period of time when put up against the the amount of time uh, we've been making wine. But what an extraordinary story. Interesting though that in our little um, experiment the old world won, which is uh, quite an interesting takeaway. So there's life in the old dog Yet. Right, so just before we go on, food pairings, because uh, we had that rather successful one with the Riesling, pronounced correctly, Uh, last week, and because I'm veggie, uh, only for two years, but fairly committed, but I try not to be a pain in the backside veggie, I just like... uh, Uh, quite like the idea of being a veggie. So uh, I found this uh, website called ohmyveggies.com, which is a great name, but it also has some good food pairings in it. It said about Riesling, actually. It said Thai, Vietnamese, Southwestern food, barbecue sauce, interestingly. And you know, that kind of links a little bit to um, the sushi idea. So it's not a million miles away from what you were talking about and and me and Louise experimented with. And it does have some for um, the full-bodied high tannin syri, it says it's saying um, olives which i quite like barbecue uh, grilled or roasted vegetables yum yum with bold sauces parmesan cheese and it says and it's got a it's got a link to the Sweetest kitchen for cauliflower steaks with olive and herb salsa which are quite fancy a cauliflower steak they're not bad you know i've heard they're good
1: actually but i haven't tried one so we must try that at some point that would be brilliant and uh, well well done all and because uh, i was thinking of you and other vegetarians particularly when we're talking about syrah stroke shiraz because it's such a big bold gutsy wine and the sort of wine you'd have with a steak or, or in australia you get you get aussie beef poi your aussie beef poi and chips would be fantastic with
0: <laughs> that sounds hearty yeah
1: Yes, I remember a girl in a cafe saying that and I think, well, i got to have one of those. But yeah, I was thinking, if you're vegetarian, how are you going to pair Shiraz, straight syrups? So that sounds fantastic. Colovar steaks, etc. Well done all for extra homework there. And just to quickly probably wrap up, just to tell folks about the next ep, which is going to be episode six, we are going to focus a little bit on Viticulture and winemaking, Oliver. Don't yawn or fall asleep. We're going. No, I you love it? it. Good. Sounds a yeah. little bit kind of schoolroomy, but actually, really, really interesting. Building on your burgeoning knowledge of terroir, thirty fifty, climate, all the rest of it. Great varieties, which ones can grow where, and this whole dilemma. Well, not dilemma. This whole tension between the skill of the growing the grapes and the genius of what goes on inside the winery because of course you need both so we're going to discuss that next week with two wines so yeah we're going to be tasting a South African Chenin Blanc 2019 made from old vines details on the website and we're also going to be discussing I think one of the most underrated wines in the world and that is Beaujolais which has some interesting slants on winemaking, part of our ep next time. So, uh, Ol, it just leaves it for me to go and um, pick up my violin and and for you to give us your quick reflections on
0: on this ep. Well, yeah, thank you. I'm going to have another small glass uh, of the the Hermit Crab and invite my wife to have a, a taste of that as well. I think she will love it as much as I do. That is my tip for the series so far. I think it's absolutely delicious. Richard, again, you have guided me through... Uh, three more really interesting wines and I've learned an awful lot about the new world and what the influence it's having on the wine drinking that we're enjoying now here in the third decade of the 21st century. Look forward to seeing you in episode six, old chum, and thank you very much for the education, the continued education that you're giving me throughout this series. Have fun everyone, we'll see you next time. <laughs>